Welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast, brought to you by the students of the University of Minnesota Medical School. I'm your host, Madeline Ahern, and in today's episode, I will be interviewing Professor Glenn Cohen. He is a James A. Atwood and Leslie Williams Professor of Law at Harvard University. Professor Cohen is one of the world's leading experts on the intersection of bioethics and the law and is the author of more than 150 articles and chapters appearing in such places as the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, the American Journal of Bioethics, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. He also leads the Project on Precision Medicine, Artificial Intelligence, and the Law, which is part of the larger Center for Advanced Studies in Biomedical Innovation Law. In today's abbreviated episode, we discuss important legal and ethical topics within the realm of medicine and machine learning, like data privacy, liability, and medical errors, and AI use disclosure in patient settings. I so enjoyed having Professor Cohen on our show, and especially appreciated his love for science fiction in literature and media. Enjoy the show. Professor Cohen, thank you for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to be here. To get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in this relatively new field of artificial intelligence and medical ethics? Yeah, so my background is I was trained in medical ethics through philosophy and then also went to law school. I practiced law for a little while and then I became a legal academic. Uh, I became at a young age associated with and the faculty director of the Petrie Flom Center for Health Law Policy, Biotechnology and Bioethics at Harvard Law School. And uh, my focus as a scholar at Harvard and as a professor there is new technologies that raise significantly interesting questions for the intersection between technology and medicine. So a lot of my early career was spent on reproductive technologies. I've done a bunch on uh, organ transplantation, people who traveled abroad, but I'm always kind of on the lookout for uh, the big new things. So right now I spend a lot of time working on gene editing and other really high-tech, slightly futuristic technologies for reproduction, and also artificial intelligence uh, and medicine. And I'll say I'm also a huge science fiction fan, so I often like to say that I work, my husband's once said to me that I work where science fiction meets science fact, because that's kind of what I find interesting. And this particular work uh, has largely been funded through a very generous grant from the Novo Novodisk Foundation in Denmark to a center called Seville at the University of Copenhagen, and we are one spoke in a wheel of things that they're funding and our project is the project on precision medicine, artificial intelligence and the law. Well, that's very cool. And that sounds so it's your interest in the new and exciting and that definitely correlates with uh, what we find new and exciting about artificial intelligence and medicine. And so you mentioned this project on precision medicine that you're leading. And we just would love to hear a little bit more about that. Mainly, what are the major objectives of this project? And how do you see your team's work influencing the future of AI and medicine? Yeah, so this was uh, funded for several years. We're coming closer to the end of our funding, although we are now actually embarking on a second project relating to looking at diagnosis at home that has a lot of artificial intelligence pieces to it, digital diagnosis at home, and that's going to be funded by the Moore Foundation. But this project, PMAIL, the main thing was to say, listen, there's a ton of artificial intelligence work being done at hospitals, device makers, by developers, right, in medicine. What are the legal and ethical issues being raised and can we make a major contribution? So the group, well, I'm the principal investigator, but I also work closely with 
uh, my colleague uh, Nicholson Price, who is at Michigan, and then I have two full-time, well, one full-time and one part-time person uh, at Harvard, Sarah Gerka, who's going to be leaving us soon to become a professor in her own right, and then Carmel Shahar, who's my executive director. We collectively, in collaboration with other teams, uh, including teams at INSEAD, the Business School, uh, the University of Pennsylvania's Medical School, Harvard Medical School, Cambridge UK, have produced something like 50 papers and book chapters, something I don't know, I haven't counted it, somewhere around that number, in places like JAMA, science, nature medicine, and the like. And that's our attempt to kind of influence the scholarly community, the people who read those journals. But we also realize that's not enough. So we've also spent a lot of time participating in work uh, with WHO, uh, the World Trade Organization. We've interacted a bunch with FDA and we were really honored that in one of their latest guidances, they cited to one of our papers uh, in a discussion about where FDA should go on this sort of stuff, as well as the National Academies of Medicine and many others who create policy in this area. So our goal, as one of my colleagues likes to say, is we're the kind of lawyers you want to call, not the kind of lawyers you should be afraid of, and that we are collaborative, we are interested in these topics, and we're interested in thinking, how is the law doing so far? How can it do better? And what are the wins and losses that might be involved with that? Absolutely. And that sounds just really fascinating. And it sounds like you guys are trying to kind of do a broad brush over this really expanding topic of um, artificial intelligence and medicine. And in our interview today, we certainly do not have time to cover everything that you've probably been working on. And in medicine, we kind of like to cover a lot of topics with what we call a case-based approach. And for our listeners, this is just where we focus on a real world or hypothetical example to explain complicated topics uh, used in the context in which we practice medicine. And Professor Cohen, I'm sure you already know this. Um, and so I'd like to ask you what one issue is that you're very passionate about that you feel is maybe controversial or just generally very important for current and future physicians to understand. And can you give us kind of a case-based approach to this topic? Great, so let me pick one. Maybe I'll cheat and get one and a half or something like that. So I think here's one that I think is slightly under theorized, which is to say, so I often say that when we think about uh, artificial intelligence in medicine, the way I think about it, which is not the way someone from computer scientists think is about it, but I think is a helpful way is in stages. The first stage is you have to get the data. The second is you have to develop a model. The third is you have to test the model in a real world setting. And then the fourth uh, is that you have widespread dissemination. I think there's really interesting stuff in each of those buckets. But one of the ones I'm most interested in, I think is a little under theorized, is the question about what we tell patients about the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning in clinical care. So uh, to use a real case, uh, imagine that you are a man who is being considered for a prostatectomy uh, because you have prostate cancer. And the question is, should there be a prostatectomy or should there be uh, watchful waiting, which is the alternative, right? And your physician recommends one or the other. Imagine that it turns out your physician bases that recommendation in part based on artificial intelligence, machine learning uh, analysis that provides a prediction as to where you are, what's likely to work best for you and the like. Should that be a mandatory part of the obligation to disclose and to discuss uh, with the patient? Currently, there's a ton of various kinds of formulas, algorithms that physicians use on a routine basis they would never dream of telling a patient uh, about. Is artificial intelligence or machine learning 
different? Is there not? Should is it good to disclose? Is it required to disclose? Would you be uh, face liability if you fail to disclose? And there's an adverse outcome. So I find this to be a really interesting set of questions, which I find that most people have very differing intuitions. And then when we try to unpack it and compare it to other kinds of informed consent cases, I think people's intuitions are also tricky on this one. So I think that's one that's kind of under theorized. And maybe if I'll take my other half will be, my one and a half would be, um, imagine that you do go forward with the prostatectomy and something bad happens, right? And it turns out that without the artificial intelligence, but for the use of it, the physician would have recommended uh, watchful waiting. Who faces liability if there's an adverse event related to the activity? Uh, does the hospital, does the developer, does the physician, who should pay? How should that be set up and thinking about that? So I think those are two very immediate issues in the clinical use space that are quite interesting. Absolutely. And I uh, was raised by a lawyer. My mom does workers' compensation law. And so I'm always thinking about the liability. And I think that's a really interesting question that you pose about, you know, who kind of is culpable when something goes wrong. And uh, we've had in on the show in the past a lot of AI developers. And I wonder, too, if there is any grounds for those people being liable for medical errors, even though they're not involved at all in the patient care. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I mean, we have a doctrine. So interesting you say your mom works in workers' compensation, because one of the possibilities is that we say we should regulate this the way we do workers' compensation, which is a system whereby we basically have people here, employers, pay in in workers' compensation. And then we have a no-fault uh, scheme where, listen, if there's causation, I don't care whether you were negligent, whether you shouldn't have done it or the like, the person's injury is listed. We have these uh, kind of tables and we figure out what the injury is and what should be paid to the individual. And it's paid from this collectivized pot. That's also the way we do vaccine injuries, which is very topical right now, but also things like the 9-11 fund. That's the way it was set up. So one argument is that this is the way we should handle um, malpractice or injuries in the case of medical artificial intelligence and machine learning. The alternative is to have some theories of liability. So on one end, we could have uh, strict liability, which essentially means even if you're not at fault, you'll pay the full uh, cost, right? Whatever you caused. Uh, as uh, the maker of an AI or as the physician who does it. In the middle, we could have negligence where we ask, did you behave above or below the standard of care as it's defined, right? And that could be for physicians. What would a reasonable physician nationally have done in the circumstance? And we have interesting questions. Is an, a, a reasonable physician aided by AI? A reasonable physician not aided by AI? How do we think about that? Or we could have what's sometimes called the preemption of liability, either by replacing it with a workers' compensation socialized system, or possibly the fact that if uh, an organization like FDA had pre-approved it, that's the end of the matter, right? We treat the approval process as the alternative in terms of regulation to liability, unless there was misuses of it or it was used in an improper fashion. So we have a lot of choices here. And what's interesting, as I often say to people, because I think many people uh, think that probably the most other developed area of AI ML law is driverless cars. And as complicated as driverless cars are, I often point out to people that medicine is just much more complicated. Why? Well, with a driverless car, right, I have uh, the developer of the AI, which might be the car company itself, and then I buy it as a consumer, and right, we're in this kind of direct privity relationship. When it comes to uh, artificial intelligence and medicine, to determine how it ends up affecting me as a patient, we have the developer. 
We have the uh, hospital system which has purchased it, right? We have the insurer who has decided whether to reimburse for it, right? Under what circumstances and what things. We have the physician who may have had this imposed or made choices to use it. We have the nurse who may be unionized and labor law, right? And all of these levels are intersecting in a way and their choices at each of these levels will affect what happens to me as the patient about how my experience goes. So it's just a lot more levels of people involved and levers, if you will, that we could adjust in certain ways. But putting them all together is very intellectually challenging and very empirically difficult to predict exactly how it will work out. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about all those different levels. It reminds me of in medical school, we learn about medical errors and all of the different spots where we have potential to make a medical error. You have labs, you have all these different members of a care team. And so to involve then machine learning into this giant structure already of possible medical errors seems very complicated. Um, I will ask you one more question. Um, sure. Kind of something you touched on is... Um, a little bit of early on, you touched on data and where this data is from and like, especially medical data, we think of the stuff that's covered by HIPAA under privacy laws, but now we have, you know, your Fitbit data, your online shopping habits. How do you think that um, law will be influencing kind of the regulation of medical data in the future? Great question. So one of the papers I did with uh, my friend Nicholson Price, we have this, my favorite figure in any paper we have, it's a paper in Nature Medicine, and the, I drew it on a napkin, the illustrators in Nature Medicine deserve the credit. But essentially we have an iceberg and above the waterline is HIPAA protected data, right? Which is t typically the kind of stuff that makes its way into an EHR, right? Below the waterline that we have everything else. So uh, Fitbit data, data about our location services from our phones, data about our shopping habits, data about our consumption, uh, data about self-reported from Instagram and Facebook that we use. And what's fascinating is we're entering an era where much of that data is highly predictive about our health, even though it's not healthcare data. So my favorite example is, well, two favorite examples. One is what seems like an apocryphal story, but it's a true story, it's been documented, about a man who goes to Target and he basically wants to have an argument with the manager because his 16-year-old daughter has been sent information about pregnancy. He says, what business do you have sending this to my daughter? Dot, 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 dot. Turns out the, the manager apologizes. The man comes back about two or three months later and apologizes because his daughter is in fact pregnant and Target knew before he did. And the reason is because of the way we analyze consumer data to find patterns that human beings wouldn't have. The other example I find interesting is actually Instagram posting habits and filters and the fact that it can be used to try to predict suicidality and depression. So both of these are kind of interesting to me because they are predictions about health that have nothing to do with healthcare data. So in a world where a lot of that is going on, if you want to give people health privacy as opposed to healthcare data privacy, you're not going to get there from a statute that's only focused on healthcare data, which is HIPAA. But even the HIPAA protected data, even that stuff, it's not exactly clear how much protection patients have. So on the one hand, they have protections in terms of privacy about stripping identifiers, but not in terms of uses. Many patients probably have signed some kind of front door consent or HIPAA waiver that has authorized the hospital where they are treated to share that data. And there was a lawsuit brought uh, against the University of Chicago and Google claiming that uh, the failure to remove uh, timestamps from uh, a data 
set, right, that was shared with Google when combined with Google's ability to re-identify people's location on Android phones through location services and the like constituted a breach of HIPAA and the like. Now, the court wasn't too sympathetic to this claim, but I think we're going to see more and more of this. And one of the most interesting, I think, philosophical questions is what is a privacy violation? If I can make inferences about your health, but it's not based on information that you've held private, it's based on publicly available information, but nonetheless, there are predictions about your health that make your life go better and worse. Is that best conceptualized as a norm of privacy versus let's say anti-discrimination or consumer protection or something else? Absolutely. And moving forward, we, we're asking you to do a lot of speculating in this interview, and a lot of artificial intelligence and medicine topics are speculation. Um, I know it's not quite fair, Professor Cohen, to ask you a big future predict predictive question, um, but I do have to ask, what issues do you anticipate being litigated as AI gains prominence in the medical field over the coming 10 to 15 years? You kind of touched a little bit on some stuff that had already been litigated, but I would be curious to hear more about that. Yeah, good question. So, I mean, there's an interesting question about how much of it will end up in litigation versus legislation, but here's a couple. So we did a great paper with the team at Stanford. Uh, Serena Jung was on this team uh, and I worked with Sargaka and JAMA about what's sometimes called ambient intelligence. Here was an example using uh, computer vision to try to uh, detect deviations from hand-washing patterns in hospitals, I think it was in the Stanford hospitals. There have been other attempts for central line insertions and also fall detection, right? Uh, but if we're entering an era where we can actually repurpose computer vision and recording to collect huge amounts of data in a space, say a nursing home room, a hospital room, right? Even the room where my parents live as families get older, right? What does that mean? How is that gonna work? If I catch something and I don't do anything about it, am I in trouble? Does an individual employee have a right not to be recorded? What happens when I catch what's sometimes called bycatching, which is like with fish, where you're going for one kind of fish, but you get a whole bunch of other kinds of fish that you throw back. Information about family members who visit and the like. So I think this is a very interesting and difficult uh, set of questions that I think we're gonna wrestle with. Another has been, and this is more, I would say, in Europe, but a little bit here in the United States, kind of more interest in explainability and what it means and rights to explanation and the idea of having a right to have uh, explained to you the basis for an algorithmic decision. And what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to do this? Does that mean that we can't use neural nets or other more black box kinds of technologies. We have to use white boxes. Uh, what is lost? What is gained from that? And then I think a third issue, which we've already seen a little bit of litigation, uh, or at least threatened litigation, I don't know if it actually came to be, has to do with uh, bias. So the word bias here is a lot built into it. So let me just say disparate effects on different groups from the use of a single algorithm that may not represent true north. That's a little bit more of a cumbersome way of putting it. Uh, but it's true. So Sindil Molinathan, Ziad Obermeyer, and their co-authors did a great paper on a uh, readmission algorithm and showed that uh, not the typical problem that most people, I think, can wrap their heads around, which is the idea that there is poor representation of certain minorities in data sets. But actually, that's not the problem. Instead, the parameterization on something like cost as the goal for what the uh, algorithm is trying to optimize against produce disparate impacts for black patients versus white patients. There's been a lot of great reporting uh, recently in Stat News and other places about this. 
and it's a real problem. Now, what I always like to say is, yeah, it's definitely a real problem, but so is the way most medicine is practiced in terms of racial disparities. So the question is, as against what? Is this incrementally better than the current? Is it worse? How would we know? How do we detect this? And to what extent does law have a role to play as opposed to journalism, um, public policy, and kind of complaining about that? So those are three issues that I think we'll see increasing amounts of play over the next few years. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, and this is our very last question for you. And I love it because a lot of our listeners are young people who are kind of just starting out in their career. Um, and that said, what advice would you give to your 25-year-old self? Ooh, that's a tough question. So many good things. Get a better haircut? No, I don't know. <laughs> um, I would tell my 25% self, you know, keep doing what you're doing, kid. This is going to be fascinating and interesting. You know, I'll say this, and this is a more of a reflection, I think, about uh, the pandemic and the moment about pandemics. We've had a huge amount of attention during the pandemic to the things that are hot topics right now. And I think it's very easy to chase what are the hot topics, much harder to pick topics that one thinks are interesting that haven't yet developed. And I think there's a lot of pushback for people like me who are kind of futuristic in our thinking and the like that we're often told well, that's very interesting, but it's not very practical. And why don't you focus on this other thing that's less interesting, but is here right now. And I'm very sympathetic to that in general, but I do think if you can reserve a slice of your time and a slice of your brain for problems that are not yet here, but could be here, even if some of them don't actually manifest. So living slightly in a science fiction world, I think that would be really, really good because I think that people who've done that are often able to then really kind of work ahead of a problem as opposed to reactionary to a problem. The other thing I'll say, and this is again, as I get older, I'm more and more aware of this, is how useful texts outside my disciplines are, so outside medicine, public health, law, and ethics as a way of reflecting. I recently uh, read a great book of short stories, science fiction called Exhalation. And some of that I've been thinking, I teach a course in bioethics through film uh, to first years of the law school, a reading group. And both of these, I think, as texts in some ways, because we're not asking you agree with the argument or disagree with the argument, uh, you know, engage with this data, don't engage with this data, allow for a kind of free engagement that I think is really interesting and really helpful. So this is a hard thing to say to medical students in particular, because you have so few hours of the day. But to the extent you do have hours of the day that are free, there's nothing wrong with watching Black Mirror on Netflix or reading science fiction novels or short stories, because in fact, that's part of your intellectual maturation and thinking about these as ways of exploring problems that are a little bit disconnected from the current world can be really, really revelatory. Okay, I'll suggest one more thing, which is to say, early on in my career, I did a lot more just as a lawyer with other lawyers. The longer I've been in this business, the more time I've spent with people in medicine, of course, but also computer science, economics, philosophy, and the like. And while there's a lot of you know uh, work involved in trying to get those collaborations up and running, they do produce things that are interesting and different than what you'll be able to do just within your discipline. So I would encourage people to be open to those kinds of collaborations when they become available. That's fantastic. And you have prompted one more question for me. You've mentioned your See? interest in, in science fiction multiple times uh, to a medical student or anyone who does have a little bit of extra time on their hands. Do you have any shows or books that you would recommend? Great question. Um, guilty pleasures to our purpose. Well, I mean, yeah, I, mean, I watch a ridiculously large amount of TV, so, so much so that people don't believe, you know, I really think I must be a plagiarist because how am I productive if I do? But I, partially I watch it in the gym, which helps. Um, 
I think the Black Mirror episodes are really good bang for your buck because they're like an hour and they're often very interesting. I think this book of short stories, Exhalation, I just read, I'm reading another one now called The Paper Menagerie by Kent New, which is a little bit of a mix. I read uh, the Three Body Problem series, which is by a very famous Chinese um, um, science fiction writer. I'll mispronounce his name, so I'm not even going to try. That I found very interesting and I really enjoyed, in part because I thought it was both interesting from a science fiction perspective and thinking big thoughts, but also as a cultural moment of understanding what would it be like to have grown up in China or how you would conceptualize uh, science fiction. But of course, if you've never made your way through Star Trek, especially let's say The Next Generation and Voyager, I think those are highly enjoyable, but they actually have great episodes that are great moments to think about as teaching tools and stuff like that. So I might start there just because I think they're very high quality and the like, but Black Mirror and the rest are also great. Any chance you were a Twilight Zone watcher when you were young? Yeah, I was actually, and I by but the old old Twilight Zone, which is crazy. That I, I randomly, I grew up in Canada. I randomly one weekend in the United States, half, I think they ran a marathon on July Fourth or something like that. And I just started watching until my parents probably yelled at me, and as a result, but I basically watched almost every major science fiction series. I've probably watched at least uh, an episode or two, and one that you know. So if we're looking now for things you might have missed. I would say the Canadian science fiction series Continuum that was on Netflix for a while uh, was very good too, and I would also recommend that. Fantastic! And with that amazing advice and those awesome uh, suggestions, we'll close out our interview today. Professor Cohen, thank you so much for joining us and for all the important work that you're doing in this field. Thank you for having me. Thank you.